Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible or an electronic device with a Bible on it, open to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look at verses 22 through 33 this morning. That's our text. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. The topic, after Jesus spits in his eyes, a blind man says he sees men like trees walking. The title of our message, he can't see their foreheads for the trees. Let's have a word of prayer. (laughs) Don't shake your head like that. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word because it's alive and it's powerful. You say in it, Lord, that it can discern between our soul and our spirit into a place that that only you can look. And I pray for each of us, whether we're non-believers or believers, that we would uh, sense you working around in there to show us the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Help us as we work through these verses uh, that we would understand them in their context, but also in terms of what they mean to us today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. Every year in June, the Tremendous Fruit Farm in Eau Claire, Michigan hosts the International Cherry Pit Spitting Championship. The current record is 95 feet, six and a half inches. That's beyond the back wall of the sanctuary. So all week I've been trying to hit that. But anyway, cricket spitting is part of the annual Bug Bowl at Purdue University in Indiana. The record is 32 feet, five inches. Now this is you spitting a cricket, not cricket spitting. Get it? Okay. Francisco Tomas Gomez won the fourth international date in olive pit spitting competition in LK, Spain. He spit the pit 118 feet. The Spanish city hosts what they call the Golden Lungs competition next to the Basilica of Santa Maria with the world, I couldn't make this up really, this is the world's best spitters in this sport taking part. Yes, It is considered a sport by enthusiasts. There's even a movement to bring olive pit spitting to the Olympics. They were turned down by the Beijing and London Olympics, but the Association of the Friends of Olive Trees continues in their quest. (laughs) As far as I can determine, a guy in India holds the world record for spitting spit at 86 inches. Jesus was a spitter. There are three spectacular miracle narratives in the Gospels. Oh, it gets better. In the Gospel of John, a blind man was healed when Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. In Mark chapter 7, we already saw a deaf man with a speech impediment healed when Jesus put his finger into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. In our text today, Jesus will heal a blind man by spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. Now, the unusual method of healing, coupled with the fact that here in our text, the healing takes place in stages, clues us that something more is going on than the miracle of a man receiving his sight. The healing is a kind of parable for Jesus' followers about spiritual sight in general. I'll organize my thoughts around the following two points. Number one, Jesus opens blind eyes and gives you progressive vision. And number two, Satan blinds open eyes and causes you vision regression. 
Let's take a look first of all in verses 22 through 30 at progressive vision. Now all through scripture, physical blindness is a metaphor used to represent the spiritual inability to see God's truth. A man who is physically blind cannot see God's visible revelation. He can't see trees and the earth and the sky and things like that. A man who is spiritually blind cannot see God's invisible revelation, things like love and truth and holiness and forgiveness and eternal life and grace and joy and peace, etc. Once we are saved, we are no longer spiritually blind. We can see. We forget, however, that we cannot see perfectly, not this side of heaven. Thus, the healing of the blind man in stages encourages us to follow hard after the Lord to receive progressively better spiritual sight. So we begin in verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. They are never identified. We can't say if they were friends or family or both. Maybe they were absolute strangers who upon seeing Jesus knew that there was a blind beggar who could benefit from his healing touch. Now the text doesn't tell us he was a beggar, but most folks who were blind or deaf or had other physical handicaps in those days made a living by begging. And so these guys, whoever they were, knew that Jesus was around, believed uh, that he could heal this man and they brought him to Jesus. The best thing always and in every situation that we can do for a person is to somehow bring them to Jesus. That might mean inviting them to church, it might mean uh, giving them something to read or something to watch, but we want to bring people to Jesus because we know as Christians they are spiritually blind and they need to be brought into the light. Now they begged him to touch him. If the blind man was a beggar, these men now put themselves in his place. They were beggars begging Jesus. It's just a sign of their compassion. They had a preconceived idea of how Jesus ought to minister to the blind man. So do we. And it can sometimes lead to disappointment. We might bring someone to Jesus. Let's say we get them to come to a service, but seemingly nothing happens. Maybe there's even an altar call and you're waiting for their hand to go up or for them to come forward and nothing happens. Do your part and leave the work in the Lord's capable hands. It's not up to us to save anybody. We can't save anyone. We can just bring them to Jesus, point them in the right direction and let the Lord do the rest. Verse 23, so he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Now, it's been suggested that Jesus led the blind man out of town because Bethsaida was one of three Jewish cities that Jesus had rebuked for their unbelief. You find his words against these cities in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, for example, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than it will be for you. And so Bethsaida was a city under God's judgment. However, even in wrath, God remembers mercy and this blind man could be healed. You and I might think, well, that city's under judgment, so everybody in there is lost. That's the end of it. But regardless, God still always is willing and wanting to work. And when they brought this blind man to him, uh, the father told Jesus what to do. 
And so no one is ever beyond hope until they're beyond the grave. And so bear that in mind. Jesus spit on his eyes. Under the law of Moses, anyone who spit upon had to wash themselves in their clothes and they were considered unclean until the evening. It's a great insult to spit on someone or to be spit upon. Jesus was spit upon as a result of his going to the cross and it was a great insult. I have no final solution as to the why of Jesus spitting. It certainly wasn't medicinal as some suggest. You know, this is a real problem in a sense. Jesus spitting on somebody is, is, is a difficulty. I won't, it's not a problem, it's a difficulty. And so some suggest that there's all kinds of medicinal properties in saliva. But I've never been treated with saliva at any emergency room as far as I know. Uh, so uh, it's not that at all. It is fascinating to consider Jesus' possible reaction. Jesus was fully God. He never ceased to be God. But during his lifetime on the earth, he voluntarily set aside the independent use of his deity and was fully dependent upon his father as a man. Fully God, fully man on the earth, set, apart, set aside his independent use of his deity to walk as a man filled with the spirit in total submission to God the Father. Spitting on this blind man must have seemed weird even to the Lord, but he obeyed. So Jesus in his humanity is following the Father's lead. The Father tells him to take this man out of Bethsaida and then he says spit on him. And and this was unusual. And yet Jesus 100% submitted to the Lord. Now, how does that help us? Well, because the father is going to ask Jesus to do something even uglier in a few chapters. He's gonna ask Jesus to be spit upon, to be ridiculed, to be beaten, to, be, uh, to have a crown of thorns planted on his head, to go to the cross and to die naked on the cross for the sins of the world. And it's a reminder that Christianity is bloody, when we talk about the cross, it's not a necklace that you wear. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not, it's not something really beautiful. The cross is an ugly, terrible way to die. It was so ugly that Roman citizens could not be put to death on the cross. Only those outside of Rome and citizenship and uh, all of that, it was for the worst criminals. And so uh, that's what Jesus had to go through for us. And so when we look at this episode and we see there is something ugly about it in that sense. It's Jesus, the most beautiful, perfect person ever, acting in an ugly manner, as it were, as a precursor of what was coming upon his life so that what? You and I could be saved. If you think, hey, I can't follow a God like that, then you don't understand the depth of your sin. You don't understand how much a sinner you really are and how much of a savior that you need. I will say this about Jesus. It took something ugly and shameful for him to save us, and he did it. The moment I think Jesus has done something ugly, I'm reminded to do something that he did something far uglier for me. So anyway, having spit on the blind man and having laid his hands on him, you're expecting him to be healed. In verse 24, it says, he looked up and said, I see men, but they're like trees walking. The description immediately reminds you of the ants in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Sometimes I wonder if he got that from this passage. Although in that case, you'd have to say you saw trees like men walking, right? To be accurate, because the ants were trees. How many know what the ants were? Ant wives, it's a, it's a big deal. 
As a side note, we infer from this that the blind man once had sight because he knew what trees looked like and could distinguish their shape from the shape of men. The men were most likely the 12 because Jesus had brought him out of town. Takeaway here is that Jesus began to heal his blindness. He wasn't totally healed at first. It says in verse 25, then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly, fully restored, better than 2020 vision, but in two stages. Now we'll suggest why momentarily, but first let's finish this part of the story. In verse 26, then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. The formerly blind man must not have been from Bethsaida, so he didn't need to go back there. Jesus didn't want him going there and giving them a testimony, not because they, just because they had been judged and had already rejected his witness, but so they would not judge the man. The people in the towns Jesus rebuked, they were pretty far gone. They would have torn down this man, they would have ridiculed him, they would have belittled him, in his excitement to have been healed. You think, I, that's not really, once they saw him healed, well, no, that's the whole point. They saw many mighty things happen before and they continued to uh, rail against Jesus and disbelieve Jesus. And so the Lord didn't want to send him back into that kind of an environment. If you got saved later in life, did you get ridiculed by friends and family? Many of us did. Many of you still are ridiculed by your friends and family for your belief in Jesus Christ. And you've, you've had to toughen up and you've gotten uh, you know, used to it. But when you were a brand new believer and you thought, wow, I've just got saved. My, my sins are white as snow and, and the Lord accepts me. I'm on my way to heaven. I can't wait to tell those that are closest to me. And then they ridicule you and they speak terribly of you. I mean, it can really be stumbling. I know some people who don't, really recover from that kind of stumbling. And it's, it's very sad. So I believe that the Lord had this man's best interest in mind as well. Now, why the progressive healing? I suggest that it was a kind of parable for Jesus' followers about spiritual sight in general. Salvation can be compared to having been blind and then receiving your sight. We are, in fact, told that we are rescued out from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. In Acts 26, verse 18, we read, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And then in Ephesians 5, 8, we read, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so the Bible says, hey, before you knew the Lord, you were in a kingdom of darkness, you could not see spiritual things, but then you were delivered from it and put in the light and you began to see. Theologians put it like this. We are once for all justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Because of the cross, when I accept Christ as my savior, God accepts me just as if I'd never sinned. Then we are sanctified, which means we're set apart and this is day by day as we walk with the Lord. The Bible says he who began the good work in us of salvation will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's an ongoing work of becoming more like Jesus every day. And one day we will be glorified. We will shed this body of flesh and be raised or raptured into a new glorified body incapable of sin 
and uh, fit for eternity. And so that's the process of salvation. We're saved, being saved, will be totally saved. Uh, and, and so that's uh, in line with this teaching about blindness and progressive vision. Verse uh, two of 1 John 3, here's how John puts it. He says, beloved, now we are the children of God, we're saved, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So I'm saved, but I don't see the end product yet. Believe me, this is not the end product and I'm thankful for it, and you should be more thankful for it. But anyway, uh, we are going to continue to change until we're like Jesus and see him face to face. Since we're a work in progress, we don't have perfect spiritual sight. The Apostle Paul said this, he said, now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, now I only know in part, then I shall know just as I am also known. Thus, I believe it's accurate to say that Jesus gives us progressive spiritual vision until such time as we see him face to face. As you age, you may need corrective lenses to see things accurately. Jesus, as he is presented in the Bible, functions as our spiritual corrective lenses. The Apostle Paul said, but we, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into that same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Apostle James calls the Word of God, the Bible, our mirror. As we look into the mirror of God's Word, we're changed into the image that we see there. And it's interesting, God's mirror isn't a mirror that so much shows us what we look like. When you looked into the mirror this morning, which I can tell all of you did, you look very handsome this morning and beautiful if you're a lady. You combed your hair and you looked and everything's just right. You saw yourself and you were working on yourself. The mirror of God's Word, you see Jesus You don't see yourself, you see Jesus as he is depicted in his glory, in his grace, in his mercy, in his forgiveness, in his compassion. And you are reminded by the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit to become more like that picture that you see of Jesus. Which is, by the way, why it's so important to have an accurate understanding of Jesus from the Bible. To know exactly how he is portrayed in the Bible because that's the image that God wants you to grow into. That's what he's trying to accomplish in you. So in verse 27, now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked his disciples saying to them, who do men say that I am? This is an immediate application of the lesson from the healing. Jesus, I believe, is asking something like this based on the answers that they give. I think what he's asking is, who do spiritually blind people say that I am? Because the answers they give can only be given by the blind. And so they answered, verse 28, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Well, John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries and John had been killed. I don't see how you can postulate that Jesus is John the Baptist. Elijah was said to come before the Messiah, uh, but certainly if you think Jesus is Elijah, you're saying he's not the Messiah. And some say the prophets. Well, it's great company to be with the prophets, but again, it's less than who Jesus was, the sinless son of God who came to uh, be our savior and Messiah. Now, before you criticize these guys, you get the same crazy answers today from blind non-believers and especially the cults about who Jesus is. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that he's Michael, the archangel. Uh, Mormons believe he is the spirit brother of Jesus Christ, or of uh, Satan, rather. Uh, 
watch the History Channel for five minutes and you'll get 17 different views of who Jesus is. And so it's crazy because we have the evidence, we have the evidence in the Bible and you say, well, how can I believe the Bible? How about 2,000 prophecies that have come true to the letter in detail hundreds of years before they were ever in history? That, that, that's just one thing. So I can trust the Bible, and the Bible tells me who Jesus is. He's God come in human flesh, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that I could be saved forever. I, I kind of think he's John the Baptist. Yeah, yeah, that's it, John the Baptist. That works for me, because then I don't have to do anything about it. Then I don't have to repent of my sin. And so it's the same today. Jesus had proven himself to be the Messiah, promised to the Jews, the greater son of David, who would establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Staring at overwhelming evidence, the people remained willfully blind to his identity. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, well, you are the Christ. Now, Christ here means the anointed one. It is the technical term used in the Old Testament of the promised Messiah. Others were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed with oil, but the anointed one, the Christ, is the Messiah. In another gospel, Jesus explains to Peter that he received this information by revelation from God. Peter received spiritual sight. He was no longer among those blind who were suggesting these other answers. And then in verse 30, then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Why the gag order? Well, probably for lots of reasons, but the one we see here in the next set of verses is that the disciples did not understand this idea of progressive sight. They had declared this great truth about who Jesus was with Peter as their spokesman, but they still had a lot to learn about his mission. They didn't see Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins. Soon enough, Jesus would give them the great commission to go into the entire world preaching the gospel, but not yet. Any message they declared about Jesus at this point would have been wrong because they would have said, hey, the Messiah is here and he's going to set up the kingdom. If you follow these guys, if you track with them in the other gospels, all they're ever thinking about is the kingdom, their positions in the kingdom, when it's gonna be set up, uh, and so this was not what was going to happen. Jesus is about to school them on a big change in priorities. Now, the thing I want to emphasize today regarding our progressive vision is simply this. It's a question. Am I beholding Jesus in the mirror of God's word? Am I becoming a little more like him every day? The Christian life is as simple as that. It is seeing Jesus in the word of God with the aid of the indwelling Holy Spirit and being changed from moment to moment, from glory to glory, uh, into his image until the day I see him face to face. Now, secondly, in verses 31 through 33, Satan blinds open eyes and causes vision regression. As I mentioned, we've come to a pivotal moment in the Gospel of Mark. For the first eight chapters... Jesus has been all about ministering to the multitudes, telling them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preached and taught and performed a vast quantity of miracles. Those miracles gave sufficient evidence that he was the Messiah promised in the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament. In verse 11, the Pharisees demanded from him a sign from heaven to prove that he was their Messiah. They were not being sincere and their request represents a national rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and of the kingdom he was offering to establish on 
the earth. From this point forward in the Gospel of Mark, for the next eight chapters, Jesus will concentrate on teaching his disciples. He'll be getting them ready, not for positions in the kingdom, but for persecutions on the earth as they go about preaching the Gospel to establish his church in the meantime while we wait for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Instead of Jesus ruling the earth from King David's throne as expected, He says this in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Talk about a spoiler alert. Nobody is ready for that. As soon as Peter declares him the Christ and Jesus says, well spoken, they're ready to go to Jerusalem and set this thing up, and Jesus immediately says, now here's what's gonna happen from this point forward. I'm going to be rejected and killed. And this is outside of the realm of their understanding. The death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead must always be the heart of our preaching and our teaching. Whatever else we might say about Jesus, we cannot overlook his victory on the cross over Satan and sin and death. We must not overlook the empty tomb which guarantees us our resurrection from the dead to a glorified body fit for eternity in heaven. And so when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about Jesus Christ, the God-man, dying on the cross in our place as our substitute, rising from the dead that we might have eternal life. Now, I like it here that Jesus was so straightforward. Now, I know that may sound silly. Of of course, he's straightforward. But so often when we are presenting hard truths, even the gospel, we tend to sugarcoat it a little bit. And I admit, it's, it's not easy to speak plainly in certain situations. But Jesus didn't say, hey, guys, things aren't gonna pan out so well in Jerusalem and, and I'm gonna go to a better place. Now, that, that's something that you might hear today. In fact, I've heard many times when individuals have died People give the death notification as, well, your husband's in a better place. Uh, This is gonna sound funny to you, but I I was in the hospital here a few years ago and a doctor told that to an elderly woman. She said her husband was in a better place and she honestly, she looked at him and says, have you transferred him to Fresno? (laughs) Because she thought thought he, he meant that he had been taken to a better hospital where he could get better treatment and then the doctor kind of hemmed and hawed for a while and I'd, I'd established a relationship with her and I said, I forget her name, let's say her name is Martha. I said, Martha, what the doctor meant to say is that your husband Fred is dead. And she looked at him and she goes, is that true? And he goes, well, yes. And then he left uh, and stuff. So uh, not, it's just hard. It's, we want to sugarcoat it. We want to say it as simply as possible. But you know, Jesus said, look, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be rejected, not just have a bad day, and I'm gonna be killed. But even then, the disciples didn't quite grasp it. We should use plain, straightforward words laced with compassion when we present the gospel. People need to know they're sinners on their way to a Christless eternity of eternal conscious suffering apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is lesson number one for this new direction in ministry. It was a very short lesson. Class was out early. Peter decided to have a little talk with Professor Jesus. And so in verse 32, he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's eyes had been opened. He had declared that Jesus was the Messiah. So ask yourself, is this any way to talk to the Messiah? 
hey, you're the Messiah. By the way, I need to rebuke you right now. If you really understood who Jesus was, would you be trying to correct him about God's plan of salvation? I don't think so. It's definitely a case of partial sight. Peter's eyes had been opened, but we would say that he couldn't see the forest for the trees in that he could not perceive what Jesus was talking about. While we're shaking our heads and saying things about Peter like open mouth, insert foot, let me say this. We have a tendency to repeat this error, and we do, in fact, repeat it, sometime, some of us more often than others. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't acknowledge the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We do, and I'm not saying we're not saved. We are. What I'm saying is that we can ignore the implications for our own lives. Look at verses 34 and 35 for just a minute. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. These verses and those that follow to the end of chapter eight, they'll be our text next time, Lord willing. For now, we can say that any time and every time we do not deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, we're in a sense rebuking him. Anytime and every time we desire to save our lives rather than lose them, we are rebuking Jesus. Anytime and every time I sin or disobey God or disagree with him, I'm in effect rebuking him. Let's say I'm looking into the mirror of God's word, beholding the beauty of the Lord. I come across information that I should not, for example, pursue a divorce from my spouse unless I have biblical grounds for it. But I say, Lord, you want me to be happy, don't you? And I'm not happy now. I will be happy over here, so I'm gonna do this anyway. Well, you have just taken the Lord aside and you've rebuked him for what he said to you. Maybe I understand from the word that I'm not to be committing sexual sin, which is a broad topic, including sex before marriage or sex with someone who's not my spouse after marriage or pornography or homosexuality and the like. But I say, Lord, my situation is unique and after all, (laughs) you made me this way. And you go on sinning. You're effectively taking the Lord aside and you're rebuking him. Those are extreme examples, of course, but any time and every time we resist the Lord, any time we refuse to submit to him, we are rebuking him. And I think sometimes if we looked at things more clearly in, you know, and, and said, hey, if we said to somebody, Gene, what you're doing right now is rebuking Jesus Christ, and said, well, you know, that's, that's kind of... That's kind of serious, don't you think? I mean, that to go into it. No, that's exactly what you're doing. And when you understand what you're doing, then you might repent. Now, Jesus had one standard response to people who rebuked him. Verse 33, he turned around and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Oh, that'll get you going. Imagine having Jesus Christ look at you and say, get behind me, Satan. It's a bad day. Don't think this means Peter was somehow possessed by the devil. He was not. His words would have reminded Peter of the wilderness temptation when when Satan tried to get Jesus off task. Jesus finally said to him, away with you, Satan. In other words, whenever we rebuke Jesus, we're acting like Satan independently, by our own will, in opposition to the clearly stated will of God. It's not company we want to keep 
or be associated with. Peter was not being mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. In context, this meant that Peter was still expecting Jesus to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Maybe Peter thought that Jesus was depressed and needed a pep talk to keep going on. Maybe he thought all this talk of dying was an exaggeration of Jesus' discouragement. You ever been with a person? Have you ever been the person that says, I just want to die? You don't mean it, but you, know, you, you can get depressed. Depression's a real thing. People, they, they get low. Energy. So maybe Peter's taking him aside and saying, oh, Lord, come on, don't, don't feel that way. I know it's tough that the Pharisees have rejected you, but man, when we get into power, we'll, we'll nail those guys, you know? And he's, he's thinking in terms of a man and not really listening to what Jesus is saying. For whatever reason, Peter promoted his own agenda and his own preconceived ideas about Jesus. He had a lot to learn, but learn it he would as his vision grew progressively more accurate throughout his lifetime, especially after he received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He saw through a glass dimly, but clearly enough that at the end of his life, he decided that he would be martyred upside down on a cross because he did not think himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for the most part, you see Peter getting progressively more spiritual in his vision. He had a couple of dips there along the way, but he's a good picture of what needs to happen. Confession of Christ, and then some problems with your vision, but more and more you are focusing in on the Lord. If you're a believer, your spiritual eyes have been opened and God is working in you to bring you to the place of perfect vision when you see his face. If you're not a believer, then the Lord is trying to open your eyes to bring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. As a believer, you can regress rather than make progress in your walk with the Lord. Perhaps another illustration that the Lord used would be helpful. The church in Laodicea had definitely regressed in their relationship with Jesus. Part of Jesus' letter to them in the book of the Revelation reads like this. Jesus is talking. He says, you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. You don't know that you are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Were the Laodiceans non-believers? Well, maybe. Undoubtedly, some of them were. Some of the language and description of them lends itself to their being spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. But other language in the letter Jesus wrote to them points to their being saved. For example, Jesus says he will discipline them the way you discipline your own children. So I have to conclude that at least some of them were saved, even though terribly backslidden, or as described in our context today, they were blinded. Their eyes had been opened once, they had spiritual sight, but they had regressed in their vision. The fix for a believer blind is for Jesus to apply an eye salve that only he can make. This is what he said to the Laodiceans, I counsel you to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He wasn't talking about anything that you could buy over the counter or any prescription. He was using the uh, uh, metaphor saying, just like you might apply medicine to encrusted eyes, maybe you have pink eye and you put that medicine on there, he says, I have a salve for your spiritually blind eye. And you know what it is? It's to repent and to go back to the mirror of God's word. It's to agree with God, to confess, and to repent, turn around, back to the mirror, and to see Jesus, and to agree with Jesus, and then to do what he says to do. His eye salve, his ointment is simple, is to behold his beauty, and then allow him to transform us into his image, not some image of our own independent, selfish thinking. Turn your eyes upon Jesus 
would be a great summary for everything that we've said this morning. And so do that as we spend time with the Lord.